My name is Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland Podcast. For everybody who's been with us since the beginning, you know that the focus of the podcast is largely around the restaurant industry and food allergies. Well, today I am absolutely flabbergastedly honored to have Lisa Gable, the CEO of FAIR, which stands for Food Allergy Research and Education, which I think everyone who has ever listened to anything that I have to say knows all about. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate your asking, and it's just been such a pleasure to get to know you before we started this show. Yeah, I mean, it is just, I can't even explain like how excited I am that you're here. And I really want to thank you for your support of the food allergy community, obviously on behalf of me, but also on behalf of everyone out there who has food allergies. And then also the thoughtfulness that you bring to your career with respect to making sure other women are, um, you know, you always reach out a hand to other women to make sure that everybody is able to have kind of the same opportunities or the best opportunities that they can have. So thank you for that, too. What a great focus to have. Well, I've been very fortunate in my life that I had a lot of women who helped me uh, through different points in times in life. And, you know, to the degree that we've all been blessed with certain opportunities, making that next step a little easier for, for someone else is just very important to me personally. Speaking of your career, you've had an incredibly impressive run. So you've worked for some very, very top name companies. And then you've also had a lot of experience in public policy and in politics. Tell us a little bit about why food allergies are important to you and how it is that you made your way over to FAIR. Well, you know, it's interesting. I moved into the consumer product goods space, working with food and beverage manufacturers in 2009, when we launched the first initiative with Michelle Obama, uh, focused on decreasing calories in the marketplace, basically pulling sugars and fats out of our, out of the foods that the 16 food and beverage companies I worked with made. During that time period is when I obviously became more aware of the food allergy community. But in 2012, I received a call from a headhunter. And that headhunter said, oh, there are these two organizations merging. And we've been told you would be great and taking a merged organization and and sort of taking it to the next level. And I was right in the middle of, of one of the first announcements with Mrs. Obama. And I said, well, I can't do it, but thank you very much. And then about 14 months later, I get a second phone call. And I said, you know, I could swear I talked to you all 12 months ago, 14 months ago. And they said, yeah, that we're, we're making some additional changes. And, uh, and it was another headhunting firm, but we got your name from someone. And so by 2018, when, and so we kept FAIR on the radar, the organization that I ran, we, we took FAIR's materials, we distributed them, we talked about food allergies, we incorporated food allergies into our conversation on health and wellness and nutrient density. But in 2018, I got the third phone call from the third headhunter. And I, and I told somebody, I said, it's, it's almost as if it's biblical where I'm supposed to talk to these people. Uh, and I have to say, when I sat down with the FAIR board during the interview process, I just really was touched by the individuals. I liked them a lot. I felt um, that there was a meeting of minds on what we needed to do to help solve the problem. And I join organizations because of the people. And interviews processes for me, a lot of times it's me thinking about, do I want to work with these people? And I just have to say from the Lonoviks to the Jaffees to the Bunnings to the Wisers and so many others who were part of those conversations, I wanted to work with them. And I absolutely have to say, give hats off to our board for the incredible investments that they've made in this community. 
Yeah. Do you have food allergies or does anyone in your family? I do not have food allergies. My nephew did have food allergies um, during his, uh, when he was younger, he outgrew those. Uh, but this is an issue where it was more along the lines of the fact that I knew I had the personal resources, I had the personal contacts in industry to help solve the problem. And so as we were looking at what do you want to do, if you could wave your magic wand and say five years from now, this is where we want the community and the, and the opportunities to be. And when they started going through what it was that they saw in their future, I knew that I had the Rolodex to be able to, to really bring a lot of resources to bear very quickly. Well, thank you for joining the community, despite it not being a personal you know, issue for you or for your children, thankfully, by the way. Give us a little bit of a picture for the mission of FAIR um, and kind of a day-to-day. What is it that FAIR is trying to tackle, just in case anybody's unfamiliar? Well, you know, as you all know, FAIR is the, the largest NGO focused on uh, food allergy research. Uh, as well as advocacy. But we are the entity that has 50 FAIR clinical networks, which is a network of major medical institutions that are involved in transformational research. And we financially support those institutions in their research and and bring funds in to help expand the research. Uh, One thing to know about the FAIR clinical network is that when we went through the process of redesigning it last year, uh, one of the number one criteria for being involved is that you had to submit your application showing how you were going to work collaboratively with others within the network. And so what we've been able to do is not only have these 50 medical institutions, but also build out systems where we're integrating on a daily basis so that they can collaborate effectively in all of our projects or around collaboration. We want to get the best and brightest minds from around the world focused on this issue. And so every project that you see that we bring forward will always have an element where people have to identify others. And so I would say that that element of collaboration around research and and also around advocacy has been a big issue that we uh, have leaned into this year. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's really interesting to me how many people are affected by food allergies, 10.4% of the population, and how little dollar-wise in terms of research are devoted to food allergies, diagnostics, and, you know, cure, if you will, if that were possible, compared to some of the other diseases and, and issues out there, right? Medically, there's many other things that are getting a lot more attention and a lot more dollars than food allergies. There is, and that's one of the primary issues that we've been focused on. You know, when we set our $200 million campaign to raise $200 million uh, to fund our research, we also have a $200 million campaign that we would like to see government funding of research related to food allergies, allergies come up to that level. And I believe there's, you know, people didn't realize how dominant food allergies were. And as I believe you know, we did some uh, three different research projects that we presented as one large study uh, this last spring. And what it showed is that one in four Americans avoid buying food with the top nine allergens. And so yesterday I met with 40 CEOs of food and beverage companies and retailers. And by being able to really get them to focus on the fact we are talking about 85 million Americans aren't buying food because of food sensitivities, food allergies, and people who live with people with allergies. And then the other thing that we were able to really bring home to them is that their purchasing decisions are the same. If you have a life-threatening food allergy or you have a severe medical uh, food intolerance, 
you're making your purchase decision in exactly the same way. And, it, and the anxiety is the same. Yeah. It doesn't, uh, people ask me all the time, what's the difference between an allergy and an intolerance? And I tell them it doesn't matter. I mean, yes, is there a difference? Technically, sure. But in terms of whether or not you should care enough to feed them that thing or not, it doesn't matter. It's unimportant. So I, I think it's an incredibly valid point. My house is completely free of all of my allergens. My kids aren't allergic to anything. They won't even order the things I'm allergic to, you know, at a restaurant because they don't want to accidentally expose me to something, right? So it's not just the food allergic people, right? It's everybody else around them and in their ecosystem as well. And that was one of the things when I walked in the door that I soon came to realize when I talked to the the Bunnings, for example, they always tell the story that when Daniel, I believe it was, was uh, allergic to dairy, that Dave will always admit, he says, you know, initially I thought, okay, well, we'll move the carton out to the garage. So then he moves it out to the refrigerator in the garage, but eventually the carton never even made it onto their property. That's right. And and so for anybody in the commodity space, anybody in the in the CPG space, that really hits home for them because they weren't recognizing that it wasn't just 32 million people. It's actually 85 million people not buying their foods in large part because the labels are so confusing. No one understands what they mean. And so people are avoiding things they could actually eat. But then secondarily is that people are avoiding foods out of respect and care for a loved one. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if they can't have it, there's no point in having the risk point of it around, right? If it's if it's controllable to not have it, just as easy to do that. So you, you bring up the top nine. Um, I think everybody who's listening to you and me talk to each other probably knows what those things are. But they also know that I'm particularly passionate about this point. And of course, already I'm out of order on all my questions, which happens to me in every single conversation. Uh, one of the reasons that I started Star, and one of the things that we focus on is that it doesn't matter what your allergies are. Whether you have something that's in the top nine or you've got something that's out of the top nine or you've got something, you know, that some combination of those things, to us it doesn't make any difference. I feel like one of the, the, the consequences of having so much focus on the top nine is that anytime you bring up an allergen outside of that, you have to battle against a disbelief. So I'm allergic to pork, peanuts, tree nuts, shellfish, and pork. Pork's always the one that gets me into trouble, right? Because people are used to the other three. So when I say I'm allergic to pork, almost 100% of the time the reaction is, really? Is that a thing? Is that possible? I've never heard of that. Huh? And I'm like, mm, they can't hear me make that face. But I mean, it's a face of frustration. And yeah, it's a thing. I wouldn't pick this. Like, it's not a choice. You know, I want bacon. Um, but I feel like the focus that we see in the industry of food allergies around those top, I understand why, right? We're solving the most common problem, if you will. Does it disservice to those of us who have allergens outside of that? How does FAIR kind of help focus outside of that top nine as well? So one of the things that we remind people is that we actually track 170 allergens. And secondarily, um, what I don't have in front of me is when we did the breakdown to the food and beverage companies, one of the columns that they see is the column against the top nine. But then there's another column of all the people that are impacted by other types of allergens, because we wanted to see them to see the holistic picture of the number of people impacted by the disease. By showing those big numbers, what we hope is that finally... Uh, encourages people to understand why it's to their benefit to fund research to help solve the problem, 
right? If you, if, 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 if you, if you're struggling with, well, why should we be involved with this? We're doing, we're doing labeling. We're doing, you know, the top eight. We, we have allergen-free products. I get that. But what we really need you to do is fund the research. We just need to reverse the problem. We need that basic underlying research. What's the cause of the disease? And I know that in particular, dairy is really struggling with this, right? Because we have uh, an American population of teenagers and college students who are not getting enough vitamin D and calcium. That's a really bad thing. And it's had serious impacts and negative consequences when um, the researchers in the nutrient density and the health and wellness space are, are looking into that. So we need to solve for that problem. We need to actually get together and, and understand it and solve it. And so those are the conversations that we've been having with the commodities is, and they're very open to it. You know, they, they've stepped forward this year to help fund a prevention project, a research project that we're doing with Dr. Ruchi Gupta uh, around feeding allergens early and often to babies in order to see if this will decrease the rise of the disease. But I think that's just one step in the puzzle as everyone's understanding that we need gut health. We've got to figure out what's going on there. Yeah, no doubt. And you know, that, that's another thing just to highlight here. I don't have a particular question around it, but the focus around kids with food allergies, I just like to remind people that it's adults with food allergies also. The percentages, if I'm right, are, are higher in adults. Just, you know, we have a tendency to take better care of our children than we do of ourselves. Uh, my allergies showed up when I was 28. Lucky me. Well, and that's the thing, and, and, and that is even more frightening. I remember I was at a, um, with a group of people uh, late one night in a hotel lobby, and we were all getting late hamburgers. We'd been at some meeting for a long time, and uh, one of the individuals who was a chief of staff for a congressman mentioned that she had literally just gone into anaphylaxis of something that she'd eaten her entire life. So that level of fear, and you did too, that level of fear of what happens and not knowing what to do. That's another reason we need to get the message out. The numbers are big. The numbers are increasing. So you want to get the message out to people who FAIR is, the level of resources that we have, what types of questions you want to ask to your doctor, because if it happens to you, then you need to be able to immediately recognize what's going on. Yeah, let's talk about that with the doctors, right? So we, you know, we have a pretty decent social media presence and we're in all the food allergy groups and all that stuff. And I don't talk a lot in those groups because, you know, you don't want to give medical advice to anybody on the internet, really. But you see a lot of the questions and therefore you see a lot of the answers. And there's so much misinformation out there about allergies. And frighteningly, from my perspective, a lot of it's coming from allergists. There's so much inconsistency in the care and in the testing that we see from different allergists around the country, that unless somebody's really a food allergy specialist, a lot of people are being told to avoid foods or that they're allergic to foods that they've never had a reaction to, right? And they're being tested with a histamine test, you know, because there's not really a great diagnostic for food allergies. How does FAIR work with the, the, not just the allergists, but also kind of those first level responders, ER doctors and, um, you know, uh, paramedics. I don't know why it took me a second to find that word. Uh, so that, you know, the standard of care is more consistent when people are getting A, diagnosed and then B, treated for food allergies. So we're doing it in a couple of ways. One of the things that we are doing is that we are creating um, uh, medical journals that are 
appropriately designed for different populations of medical professionals. The first one we did was this past year uh, that's really aimed at your average doctor. It's kind of a one-on-one on food allergies, everything that you need to know, focused on getting it out to pediatricians, getting it out to medical students, because they don't really focus on it right now as a as an area of, of focus for training. And so that is the, the first thing that has gone out. Uh, secondarily is we will be producing more of those aimed at registered dietitians. We already have a program that we worked on with some of our folks on registered dietitians. We're now actually creating something else that will be a standard you know, based uh, training program or, or document that they can read, a journal that they can study. And we're expanding our LMS so that we really are focused on school nurses. So FAIR has always had, one of the strengths of FAIR is the quality and science-based quality of our content was fantastic when I walked in the door. And I really give credit to all of those people who went before me that created that great content. Now I'm setting up channel marketing. And what channel marketing means is that you take the content, that medically-based content, you adapt it for the vernacular of the audience that you're trying to serve, and then you serve it up to them in the manner that they're used to getting information. And so we are doing that across multiple different medical professional groups or associated groups like registered dietitians to ensure that that information that you're talking about is going out and now being part of not only their their credits that they earn, but also information delivered in such a way that it's information that they can quickly add to their portfolio of knowledge. Um, And so that has been a huge focus. We brought on a a registered dietitian on staff. We brought on a couple of public health professionals on staff. We'll be growing that mix, but being able to repurpose our content and deliver it up to all those different channels is one of the very first things that uh, we're doing. And then also having partnerships with the various associations that serve those populations of medical professionals. I love that. I love the channel marketing idea. What a brilliant way to be able to get the right information, you know, from a a group that wants to provide information to patients and make sure that pa- patients have the best possible outcomes and the best possible lifestyle. Going to the to the doctors, you have to serve it up in a way that the doctors and the medical professionals can consume or want to. And, you know, it, that, that's credible to them. I love that. I think that that's a great idea. Um, when those things happen, when somebody comes away from an allergist with, to give perspective, I, I test positive for 35 foods. Yay. We've, I've cut a deal with my allergist that we're never testing me again, right? When people come away from their doctors with this list of reactions that they've had, and they think that they need to avoid all those foods forever because... They've been eating them their entire lives, never had a reaction, but now they have a test that says they can't have them. The amount of quality of life change that they have in that moment is incredible. And FAIR is one of the best resources for people to be able to go to. But talk a little bit about that. What do people experience? And we all know that it's you know potentially unnecessary, but what do people experience? And how can we, as a community of organizations, help people through that so that they can have a better quality of life and less anxiety? Well, I think, you know, one of the primary ways that we can solve the problem is if we can come up with an alternative diagnostic to the oral food challenge, Uh, something that would actually enable us to understand the severity of the disease for each individual, allow us to have the data that gives us more information about really what's going on, because currently there's no way to slice and dice the 32 million. 
And in fact, we are exploring how we could utilize even clinical trial data where you're taking multiple people through oral food challenges to at least get some understanding. Because what we don't know is what percentage of that population has a severe food allergy? Is there a biomarker? Is there some type of diagnostic that would enable us to, to get that information right away? So we, uh, as you know, with J&J, we funded a, a uh, grant that has uh, recently been given to King's College to do research in this area, but FAIR is going to be making some other major announcements in the space. Uh, it is it is job one, replacing the oral food challenge for that reason, and also because it's a horrible and horrific process for people to go through. It's arcane. It's, it's, it's beyond belief that we're sitting here in 2021, and that's the solution. Well, uh, and a- if people even get to that, right, the... the- right. The qualification that a lot of doctors use for the oral food challenge is a skin test. And I think with the um, with the doctors that we have now, you know, our primary message is go and, and make sure that you're talking to somebody who is a food allergy doctor, someone who really has a deep knowledge in that space. And make sure that you go back and have your child retested. You know, as you and I were talking about before we started, you know, during in, in the obesity conversations, we talk about undernutrition and over, you know, and, um, and undernutrition can be junk food, right? It could be people getting too many sugars and fats and too much salt, not enough good nutrients. But we have undernutrition when people are doing that level of avoidance. And that's not, that is, that's not healthy for anyone. And it's also not a diet that's easy to maintain. What really, what has just uh, always literally caused me just to have heartbreak is when I listen to people jumping through hoops to accommodate a diet that hasn't truly been validated by some of these colorful tests that they get back from things when they can't afford to do that. And we literally know of people sacrificing other things that their family needs in order to accommodate a diet. And the question is, if they have a life-threatening food allergy, if they have a severe intolerance, and how do we give them access to more information that allows them to have multiple choices within that diet? So that's one of the key things that FAIR is focused on, is how do we make the consumer journey uh, much cleaner and better so that people do have more options that fit their pocketbooks? And they, they do have, I know you had Emily on, and she talks a lot about food banks and making sure that that, that, uh, that food is available to them at a food bank. But on the second half of the equation, what you're talking about is people who are advancing um, avoidance diets when they're not necessary. Exactly. And, and that is, it's tragic. I mean, that's the only way to say it is it's tragic. Yeah. I mean, the, the, to put it in your words, the hoops people jump through, it, it's, it's crazy making, right? I had to do the same thing. I have food allergies, obviously, but I also have eosinophilic esophagitis, which I can now spell like a champion, by the way. Took a while. (laughs) But yeah, we had to go through the elimination diet, right? And because I test positive for so many things, they put me on elemental formula for I think 14 weeks or something like that. And then I was able to introduce back one food every two weeks. One food. That doesn't mean like mac and cheese. That means like corn. Right. Right? One thing every two weeks. So I mean, it was nearly a full year of really not being able to eat. And the stress level. Miserable. I mean, just the the anxiety of the mm-hmm. process that you had to go through, it's not pleasant. Food's supposed to be pleasurable. Well, you turn it into a miserable experience. And then secondarily, 
And, and how do we come up with a way of testing people that doesn't force you to go through that process? And on the flip side of that, we didn't come to any conclusions. We learned nothing from that year. Fabulous. But I have a funny story about testing. You mentioned having people go back and retest their kids when uh, my older son was, I don't know, 20 months or something like that. Not quite two. I was maybe even younger than that. I was introducing foods and because of my food allergies, I was, you know, once a week you get a new thing. And I gave him a baby food, so he must have been younger than that, that had what I thought were no new ingredients. And his whole face blew up. And I read the label, which, you know, because, you know, they write baby food, right? You're like, oh, look, it's baby food and it's apple, peach, banana, kiwi. So you think the only things in it are apple, peach, banana, and kiwi. No, that's not true. I learned that that day. There was mango in it. Well, I took him to the allergist because although I had food allergies at the time, I wasn't as educated as I am now on the topic. And he said, well, we don't have any way to test for mango, so we need you to bring in a mango. And what I should have said is, I know darn tootin' well that he has a mango allergy because I watched it happen. I don't need you to test him. But of course, what did I do? I went to the store. I bought a mango. They scraped the mango with their little skin pricky right. witch thingy, and then they pricked him. And I don't even remember if he reacted to it, but what a dumb process. Yeah, it's not, it is a very old fashioned process and the where science and uh, is today, where AI is today, we've really got to realize how to maximize these systems. I mean, one of the things that we talk about is that data is a regulatory circuit breaker. And so, as you know, FAIR is very focused on building out the data through the patient registry and anyone listening should go and sign up for the patient registry, uh, but also through customer surveys, through uh, surveys of Medicaid data, anything we can find, we've, we've got to utilize the advantage we have and we learned it as we've all seen with the design of the COVID-19 vaccines, is AI is a process for accelerating how we acquire data that's out there to make key decisions. Uh, so that is one of the areas of focus. Secondarily is obviously investing heavily in the space of coming up with an alternative diagnostic and really understanding the bifurcation of the disease for the 32 million people. And thirdly is making sure that we educate people who are talking to you, no matter if they're in public health or if they're in the grocery store as an RD, or, you know, if it's your school nurse, that people are far more educated on the questions to ask and the suggestions to give. And I think on an openness perspective, you know, one of the things um, that we work together on, so my episode for the Living Teal channel on my food allergy story came out January 16th. So a little plug for that. Everybody go to the Living Teal channel and watch my little episode. You can watch me get all teary eyed. And the message of that channel is you are not alone. Right. Right. Which by the way, when I recorded that, I did it in one take, but it'll look like it got edited because it took me about two minutes at the end of it to get that sentence out without crying. Right. Yeah. And I think that one of the um, one of the things that we as a community need to work on is understanding that it's okay to talk about having food allergies. You're not alone. Everybody you talk to knows somebody. The, the numbers are so big. I mean, enormous numbers of people have this. And I mean, I think that the statistic is like 65% of Americans live in a household with somebody else who has a food allergy or intolerance. What? And that's 200 million people, yeah, yeah. right? So everybody knows somebody who has a food allergy. Why do you think that food allergy people are so quiet about it? They're unwilling to talk to restaurants about it. They're unwilling to talk to their friends about it. They don't want to be a burden. And I mean, I know the feeling, I get it, but why do you think that is? And how do you think that we can help kind of shift that attitude to a little bit more, you know, let's make some noise? 
Well, that is one, one of the goals of the Living Teal channel is to make food allergies famous. We talk about it internally and people go, what, you want to make food allergies famous? I'm like, yes, we want to make food allergies famous. We basically, it is, it is the stated goal of the Living Teal channel internally. Why? Because it needs to be just part of your vernacular, part of your conversation, easily understood, accepted. You say it. Somebody takes an action that's beneficial for you. You move on. Right now, people are having to advocate for themselves in many cases in isolation, right? They're the one that has to stand out in the crowd because they have to explain it all to somebody and they have to go into detail about it. Sometimes they have to justify it. And uh, or they feel like they had to justify it. So you you find yourself in this in this acrimonious position, and it's very uncomfortable. People most people don't like to pick fights, and um, and so if we can make food allergies famous, if we can make it part of the vernacular, so we make it easily understood by kids in school with people, it just becomes another thing. It's not a big deal from a standpoint that you're talking about it, but it is a big deal if something happens to you. If you, if you, are, um, if you touch that food or you uh, have cross-contamination of that food, accidentally ingest it. So that's, that's on us. And it's one of the reasons that we wanted to bring on people like Rashad Jennings and others who, you know, who just make it, you know, if it comes from, if it comes from a famous football player, then I guess it's okay to talk about it. Uh, but uh, but we want people to feel strong. We want them to be able to matter factly, but we, we need to seed the environment. So they are offering up and self-advocating in a place that's going to be accepting of them. That's my job. My job is to make sure that when you do have to self-advocate, that you're in a comfortable position to do so. And that is one of the key areas that Living Teal will hopefully do for us. And one of the reasons we're so focused on reaching so many people and bringing them to the conversation. And I really think that we collectively um, can look at, you know, the the gluten community, the vegan community, the vegetarian community, the keto community, and look at all the products that are on the market that restaurants and grocery stores and schools have picked up. Let me, I'll pick on Beyond Burger or Impossible Meat or whatever, right? They should have a much more difficult time selling their product because the percentage of people out there, it's relatively small, right? Vegans are like, what, 2% of the population or something like that. And yet they're never afraid to say, hey, I'm a vegan and you got to feed me. Right, because they've made it a badge of honor. Right. It's almost a badge of superiority in some cases. Right, and so then restaurants say, oh, I get vegan people in all the time. No, you have five times more people who are food allergic than you have vegan, and yet you're willing to work with Beyond Burger, but Certistar has a hard time calling you. Yes. I don't mean to pick on the Beyond guys or the Impossible guys or anything like that, but, you know, it's. I would love to see a shift like that. Let's that badge of honor so that the companies that are trying to help you have a more successful run out there in the world, you know, convincing the restaurants and such that they, they're needed. Well, it's interesting. I won't say who it is, but I talked to a well-known person in the plant-based food space. And, um, and I asked her, I said, you do know that pea protein can cause an allergic reaction for people with peanuts. So we just want to work with your network to make sure these foods are aware of that and that we can partner with them to make people aware of it. And, I got a long dissertation about saving the planet and how important it was. And I said, yes, but our people would die immediately. <laughs> and, your, 
and I know we need to save the planet, but there's there's not the immediacy there. So we really need you to work with it. She goes, but it's so much healthier. And I go, it's absolutely a very healthy diet. We support a plant-based diet, but what we're telling you is that our families actually could die if they don't know what's in those plant-based diets. And it was really hard. Her, her, her. Um, let's just say her, her level of of importance related to her message yeah. was overwhelming. The fact that we were trying to communicate a life and death situation to her, and she really had a difficult time with it. We we had somebody said, "I got her there at the end of the conversation." Of somebody, one of my uh, consultants who I've worked with for fifteen years, gets off the phone going, "Well, that was the." That, you were good in that conversation. You finally got her there because it's really people, you know, people have attached so much meaning to these things. Yeah. Well, we need them to understand that this is life. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. And by the way, I'm all in favor of of all of these different, you know, dietary restrictions people have. I'm just kind of in awe of of their confidence in it. And I would really like to be able to transfer that into the food allergy community as well. You know, I think one of the reasons for it is that it's literally exhausting. It's every single bite of food that you put in your body for the rest of your godforsaken life. So you, you, you can't say like, well, today I don't feel like being quite so passionate of an advocate for myself. That's like saying, well, today I don't want to eat. It's not so good, right? And it's just kind of a, it's a tiresome burden and you don't really want to go lay that on other people. But I'd really love to shift that one. So on this topic... Talk to me a little bit. I think that it's really fascinating, all of the lobbying and, um, you know, public policy work FAIR does. I think it's one of those things that for those of us who are outside of that curtain, what does that look like? What's a day in the life of working public policy and trying to get a bunch of senators and Congress people to go and, you know, advocate to their colleagues on your behalf? How does that look? Like unveil well, it a little you know, bit. The, the way it looks is it's all of us coming together. You know, it's all the food allergy groups have have been very good about collaborating together on the Hill. And um, and it's finding those champions in Congress. I mean, Doris Matsui, uh, Tim Scott on the Senate side, uh, you know, uh, Congressman McHenry is is joining the fight. Ro Khanna. I mean, it doesn't matter, Democrat or Republican. They are they are people who uh, McHenry, his child's best friend, has food allergies. Doris Matsui's grandson has food allergies. Ro Khanna's child has food allergies. Tim Scott just cares about it. He, it's really interesting. I don't think there's a personal connection there. He just is really thinks it's important for all the reasons you just articulated. And, um, and so it's a matter of finding your champions um, and then maintaining the relationships with their staff. Everything gets done at the staff level. And that's one reason we, we are so happy that we were able to bring 150 advocates to the Hill before everything started shutting down because it's a personal relationship with you, you bring with you to those staffs. And knowing that there are lots of ways to get things done in Congress because you can get things added into something. But on the regulatory and FDA and government side, you know, we there, there are the career folks that you build the relationships with. And Susan Main is a, is a great champion internally within the FDA 
today for the food allergy uh, community. They've she is she has made it a point, as has Frank Giannis. Um, and then you have the political appointees. And so for us, we, we make sure we maintain the relationships with, with everyone on all sides of the aisle, uh, continue to advocate on our message, but it's also understanding where you can pull the levers. We knew we have a chart for prevention, which shows when we can pull the levers to get WIC changed, to make more food available to families who are dependent upon WIC. And I know this is a big issue for, for Emily. Mm-hmm. SNAP, same <laughs> thing. We know we, we literally have a timeline where we can say we can take these actions, we can change this government policy, this government policy, this government policy, and then this one. This is where we have to have the research lined up and the data lined up. And so we are actually working towards with our research to have the available data they need at the very specific time that that government policy comes into its renewal or whatever the process is for it. Um, So it is, you know, my staff has, um, you know, we have two folks that were chiefs of staff on Capitol Hill, um, have worked with big associations. We have a great grassroots team. Uh, Everybody knows John Hoffman, who's been in the food allergy space for quite some time and and is very well loved. Uh, Jeremy, who came to us from JDRF, who has one of the largest grassroots, you know, they've quadrupled our grassroots. So it's a team effort. And um, we are just so thankful for our Board of National Ambassadors, our advocacy team, our TAG members, our fellow food allergy advocates um, and advocacy organizations, and the willingness of everybody to link arms and just battle it out piece by piece. We each take different pieces of the puzzle. We can't all do it alone. Well, let us know how we can be of assistance on there. I'd love to be there with you, linked arms uh, in the fight, you know. Um, We'll take you to the hill when they let us back up. We're going to have a virtual fly-in day. (laughs) Perfect. I'm there. Just put it on a calendar. I'm in. so we're, we're heading towards the end of our time. I, I know I, uh, we talked a little bit about at the beginning, you know, bringing other women along with us, if you will. What advice do you have for other women in business or in public policy or in, you know, more public life? Yeah, you know, be, be aggressive and truly helpful when you mentor people. Um, reach out to them and um, ask if you can help them. Uh, don't wait for somebody to come to you elevate somebody. If I get a, you know, if somebody calls me for an interview, in fact, yesterday I got called by Discovery uh, to do an interview on the inner workings of the inauguration. And I'm like, well, that's not my expertise, but here, you know, a friend of mine for 35 years, she's worked for multiple uh, White Houses. She knows it inside and out. And they literally had a film crew there yesterday. Like it was the fastest turnaround. But when opportunities come, toss them to other people. Just don't say no. There's no time anybody asks me, tells me that they have a job open and am I interested? If I say I'm not, I offer up five other names to them. Uh, But secondarily is um, it's a long-term relationship. Everyone who has mentored me has stayed in my life, helping me at different stages in my life. So I'm in my late, you know, I'm 56 right now. And so there are women, Barbara Barrett, Secretary of the Air Force, Um, You know, she's been there for me since I was 24 years old. And, um, and I do that. I've got women, I've got a a woman who is my chief of staff when she was 26. She's 40. Now I am helping her through the next stage. It's a long time commitment to each other. And she's doing the same thing. So what I tell people, it's a daisy chain. And um, some of our staff members, I've reached out to their kids and said, look, you're looking for your first job during COVID. Let me help you. 
I can help you. <laughs> we can make this so much easier. Well, and the flip side of that is take advantage of help when it's offered. So many people you say, oh, I, you know, I'd love to help you with that or I'd love to be a part of that. And then the phone doesn't ring and it's a little perplexing. But you, you know, you're, you're doing this with your podcast. You're giving a voice to all of your colleagues, which is a really important thing. But people don't recognize, they think mentoring is just advising somebody and coaching them when they're in the workplace with you. To me, it's a lifelong relationship. I love that. I think that's such a great way to look at it. And especially the piece around, you know, don't say no, offer up somebody else, yeah, right? No. Give somebody else an opportunity and, and who knows whether they take it or they don't, right? It, it's, uh, it, it can always be useful to both sides. I think that's awesome. Did, uh, so did somebody warn you about two truths and a lie? Yes. Okay. So I like to wrap up all of these episodes with two truths and a lie. It's just my way of connecting with the audience a little bit. So listeners, as you know, uh, we're going to hear from Lisa three quote-unquote facts about herself. One of them will be a little bit less than factual. She's not going to tell us in the show which one's not true. If you want to know, you'll have to reach out to us on your favorite social media or podcast platform. Lisa, take it away. Okay, so my three truths are that I love reading cookbooks for fun, that my mother took in 13 foster children when I was growing up, and that I tried to join Naval Intelligence when I was 22 years old. Oh, those are good. I don't even have a guess. <laughs> huh. Well, listeners, again, if you want to know, you're going to have to ask us. Let us know how uh, our listeners can connect with FAIR and with you online. Sure. Go to foodallergy.org. As we've talked about today, go to YouTube and look at our Living Teal channel. Uh, which is where you're going to find information and, and really fun uh, speakers, uh, both our food allergy friends talking about their own journeys, as well as people like Rashad Jennings, Shannon Miller, Ali Khan, uh, Leslie Durso from the Food Network. So go to uh, our YouTube Living Teal channel, best information to live your best life, and then find us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. Perfect. Well, thank you again so much for being here. This was a great conversation, and I think everybody who's listening learned something and hopefully finds themselves a little bit inspired to help their food allergy friends and family along the way. Uh, listeners, thanks for being here. Give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. You can find us pretty much anywhere that Lisa just mentioned. Uh, and please give us a subscribe on your favorite podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Shandyland. Lisa, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. 